What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, friends and neighbors. Well, Donald Trump is the third person to be impeached, but the only president to be impeached twice. But that's not the only way he made history. In the short space of four years, Donald Trump managed to take over the Republican Party, render the Congress useless and ineffective, undermine trust in the electoral process, destroy our relations with foreign allies, make enemies of members of the media, and sow more division among Americans than ever existed before, all the while insisting that he and not Joe Biden won the last election. One favorite target of Donald Trump was California Congressman Adam Schiff, manager of the first impeachment trial, whom Donald Trump called a liar and scum. But Trump's now out of office, and Adam Schiff is still in office. And the good congressman's out with a blockbuster new book on the first impeachment trial, which documents how close we came to losing our democracy under Donald Trump and might still do so if Trump ever returns to power. His new book is called Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could, and it is number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. It's great to be with you. And I have to say, congratulations, uh, number one, on publication of your new book, Midnight in Washington, and number two, for making the New York Times number one on the bestseller list. That is uh, pretty exciting, Congressman. Way to go. Well, thank you. Uh, It does have the additional benefit of, I'm sure, driving Donald Trump crazy. (laughs) <laughs> which you will hear about for sure. Uh, I definitely want to talk about, but by the way, I must say um, in my business, I read a lot of political books. Um, most of them are not worth it. Your book is exceptionally very well written, very informative, stock full of good stuff. So um, I, I really want to say great job on the book. Well, thank you very much. That, that means a lot to me, especially coming from Someone who is uh, such a talented writer uh, in yourself. So thank you very much. You're very kind. Thanks. And I want to get into the book. Let me ask you first, if I may, Congressman, a couple of questions about items in the news. Steve Bannon, the House of Representatives, voted that he should be held in criminal contempt of Congress. What should Merrick Garland do? What will he do? Well, he should, in my view, uh, promptly bring that before the grand jury. The statute uh, provides the department has a duty to do so. That's a duty that's not always observed, but I think there's good reason to believe that that's exactly what will happen. Uh, The Biden administration repeatedly, including the Justice Department, has made it clear they're not going to assert executive privilege. Uh, They want uh, the January 6th Select Committee to get all the information we need to write a comprehensive report, to write recommendations about protecting the country going forward, that uh, January 6th was no ordinary day in the life of of our country. And as the White House said once again in rejecting Trump's claims of executive privilege, uh, the, the unquestioned public interest here is in disclosure. 
Uh, and so given that Bannon has no grounds to refuse and, and simply failed to show up, uh, I think he'll be prosecuted and should be prosecuted. Why is that so important? It's important in two respects. First, he's a key witness. Uh, this was somebody on January 5th that was predicting that all hell was going to break loose on January 6th, as indeed it did. But uh, more than the fact that he was in communication with the president at that critical time uh, is the fact that if, if the department doesn't move forward, um, it, it just reinforces a message that uh, Congress no longer has any oversight power uh, and that uh, certain people are above the law. Uh, you know, if you or I or anyone else got a subpoena to show up in court or before Congress and basically just decided not to, um, we would be arrested. There'd be a bench warrant for us. And uh, a court without the power to compel witnesses is no court. A Congress without the power to compel witnesses information is no Congress. It becomes merely a plaything uh, in the hands of an autocrat. So uh, I think it's is as important as getting Bannon's testimony. It's equally important to uh, restore the rule of law and the idea that nobody is above the law. So we're waiting to see what Mary Garland will do with Steve Bannon. As yet, um, the attorney general has done nothing vis-a-vis Donald Trump, although some people point out that his call, just the one call to the secretary of state of Georgia asking him to find 11,780 votes was a clear violation of federal law. Um, some Democrats, to me, have expressed frustration at the attorney general for not already appointing a special prosecutor. Do you share that view? And, um, uh, and if so, why hasn't he? Uh, I certainly share the view that um, the president, the former president's conduct um, should be investigated uh, to determine if crimes have been committed, that uh, we can't have a situation where uh, when you are president, you can't be prosecuted. And when you leave office, you can't be prosecuted because that really would make the president um, untouchable. And, and that's a dangerous prospect in the abstract. It's even more dangerous when you consider that Donald Trump is once again running for president. Uh, so I think in particular, uh, and you put your finger on what I think is the most serious allegation that needs investigation, and that's the president's efforts to get the Secretary of State of Georgia to essentially fraudulently create 11,780 votes, just the number he would need to meet to beat Joe Biden in Georgia. Uh, because anyone else would have been indicted for that by now. And, you know, whether that requires the appointment of a special prosecutor or can be handled by the Department of Justice itself, uh, I, I haven't really opined on. But I, I do think that that, that uh, potential crime, uh, the indictment uh, in which individual one is already mentioned in the Southern District of New York, uh, Donald Trump was involved in directing and coordinating a campaign fraud scheme. Uh, in which Michael Cohen went to jail and the Justice Department said Michael Cohen should go to jail uh, for his participation in that scheme. So what's the argument that the guy who is directed and is coordinated needs to go to jail, but the guy who did the coordinating and did the directing gets a pass? Um, so I, I think all of these uh, issues, and, and if there are more, need to be worked up by the Justice Department, and then the Attorney General can make the decision uh, whether the best interests of the country are prosecuting a former president we're not prosecuting him, but we can't simply ignore the crimes and pretend they didn't happen. So on a related issue that has surfaced this week, Rolling Stone reports, Congressman, that according to some of the organizers of the January 6th insurrection, they were in touch ahead of time with certain members of Congress. 
uh, Republican members of Congress, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene. If so, what <laughs> what's the punishment or what should happen to these members of Congress who in effect were helping organize an assault on the Capitol? Well, first of all, we're investigating all of this. And, uh, and I think uh, on a very nonpartisan basis, all of us on the committee, Democrats and Republicans, want to get to the bottom of uh, everyone who had a role in that bloody assault on our Capitol. Uh, and we are not excluding anyone from that, uh, that scrutiny, uh, including members of Congress. Um, so, you know, I don't want to prejudge too much what we're going to find, but uh, there are a number of remedies. Uh, of course, whatever we expose can be shared with the Justice Department so they can determine whether people in Congress or out of Congress uh, have committed uh, criminal acts associated with January 6th. Uh, short of that, uh, the Congress has the power to censure members of Congress and to expel them. And so uh, there are a number of remedies that we can take, ethics complaints, censure, expulsion, uh, that Congress acting on its own can undertake. But I think first, we need to, uh, to gather the evidence, see what the strength of that evidence, what the role uh, members may have played before we reach any or jump to any conclusions about what the remedy should be. That is definitely one of the things that January 6th uh, Select Committee will be looking at. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and finally, before we get right into the book, I, in your book, you talk about um, what an honor it was for you to work with John Lewis on voting rights in the House. Now, um, with this blockade and this failed attempt to get voting rights through the Senate, um, in, in your judgment, Congressman, is it time to either end or fix the filibuster? Um, absolutely. I, I favor ending it. Uh, you know, frankly, I would rather have U.S. policy engage in wide swings, depending on who's in the majority, than be paralyzed uh, and in a constant state of gridlock. I think gridlock is, is the absolute worst uh, prescription for democracy. Uh, and I also think it's important that uh, a majority of the American people can effectuate their will through the Congress which is not possible either with a gerrymander in the House uh, or with a filibuster in the Senate. The Senate is already uh, unrepresentative of the country, given that 23% of the population controls 60% of the votes in the Senate. Um, so I, I favor doing away with it altogether, uh, but, a, but at an absolute minimum, the filibuster cannot be used once again to protect a new generation of Jim Crow laws, laws to disenfranchise people of color. Uh, and, and I do think it's going to require um, the persistent uh, attention of the president quite personally with Joe Manchin uh, to help Joe Manchin find a path to passage of voting rights. Uh, and I'm hoping that the efforts to take it up and seeing that it failed uh, last week are part of making the case to Joe Manchin and therefore the people of West Virginia that uh, there's no way Republicans are going to go along with protecting voting rights because the Republican business model right now is um, is to disenfranchise people. Mm -hmm. They realize their policies are backward and unpopular, and the only way they can achieve power is if they get fewer people to vote by making it uh, difficult for people to vote. Uh, and uh, and so this has just got to get done. In my view, it's an existential issue in terms of our democracy. Okay, Congressman, there's so much news of the day to talk about. But let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive right into the new book, Midnight in Washington, with Congressman Adam Schiff. 
Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW. Under President Mark Perrone, they service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work, taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. Our guest today, Congressman Adam Schiff. He is a member of the January 6th Select Committee in the House and author of the New York Times bestseller, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. I must say, Congressman, the title of your book, every word of the title and subtitle is loaded with significance. Uh, Let's just start with Midnight in Washington. That's an ominous title. What's that mean to you? Well, I chose it for, for a couple of reasons. The, the title comes literally from the beginning of uh, my closing argument in the impeachment trial. Right. Uh, when I, I wanted to get the senator's attention, I began by saying it's midnight in Washington. Uh, the lights are going out after a long day in the impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump. And what I was describing was something that happened a couple of days earlier during the trial. When, you know, there they were in the Senate arguing to the senators, the Trump defense team, that you can't impeach a president for obstructing Congress. If a president obstructs Congress, you need to go to court uh, to to um, prosecute the case and get get information that way. But in court, the Trump lawyers were arguing the exact opposite, that Congress could not go to court, didn't have standing to go to court, and that only remedies like impeachment uh, were warranted, and so they were. They were using these hypocritical, hypocritical art- arguments, and they had a filing due in court, and they waited until midnight to make the filing to hit send uh, because mm. they didn't want 
the senators to know about their duplicity in court. Um, and it was a perfect metaphor for all the dishonesty of the Trump administration and their defense. Uh, so that's how we began that closing argument. But but I really chose it also because midnight is the darkest hour of the day everywhere in the world. But it's also a time where there's hope because you know what follows uh, is the prospect of light. And I, I feel like we're at midnight right now. Um, but I also think we're going to get through this. And I, and I wanted the book to convey also uh, a sense of optimism about the future, notwithstanding the challenges in our way. And so the subtitle is How We Almost Lost Our Democracy. How close did we come, Congressman? We came very close. Uh, in so many ways, we came so close. Uh, we came close in that the president was intervening with local elections officials uh, in one state. Uh, and at one point, they held up the certification. Uh, and had they persisted, uh, we would have had a problem in that state. He was weighing in with state legislatures, legislators in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Uh, had they gone the wrong direction, we would have had another constitutional crisis. Um, we came within six seats of losing the House. Had we lost the House, Kevin McCarthy would have been Speaker, uh, and he would have succeeded in decertifying the election. Uh, had Brad Raffensperger not stood up to Donald Trump uh, and sent a different slate of electors to Georgia, or had Donald Trump succeeded in using the Justice Department uh, to coerce Ukraine, uh, Ukraine to coerce uh, Georgia uh, mm -hmm. into uh, sending an alternate slate of electors. It, there are so many contingencies where things could have gone so seriously wrong um, that we came very, very close and, and in ways that I think Americans could never have imagined. And one of, the, one of the reasons I wrote the book is that there's a lot that's been written about what happened in the Trump White House during these years but very little that's been written about what happened in Congress. And Donald Trump could not have done any of these things. Uh, he could have not torn down any of these institutions the way he did, but for the willing help of accomplices in the Congress, people who enabled all of this assault on our democracy. And I wanted to tell that story. How does that happen? How did people that I, that I knew and respected because I believed that they believed what they were saying um, come to abandon their beliefs, abandon their ideology, often abandon their own ethics uh, to support this immoral human being in the Oval Office. And maybe the scariest part of your title are the very last three words. It's not only how we almost lost our democracy, but then you add, and still could. In other words, Donald Trump may be gone, but the danger of Donald Trump still persists. Yes, and and you know here uh, it, it just uh, is so agonizing to me that um, we came we, we had an opportunity after that terrible insurrection after the country saw to what terrible end Donald Trump had brought the United States of America um, the Republican Party in particular had a chance to cast him aside uh, and you could see uh, in Mitch McConnell a struggle that went on after the insurrection as he weighed whether to try to throw Donald Trump overboard. Uh, after the second impeachment trial, uh, McConnell took to the Senate floor to blame Trump for the insurrection. He wouldn't vote to convict him, but nonetheless, he would go and blame Donald Trump for uh, being morally and practically responsible for this attack on our democracy by broadcasting the biggest lies using the biggest mega, mega, megaphone. Uh, and he even uh, intimated that uh, there were remedies more appropriate for Donald Trump than impeachment, like prosecution. 
But it would only be two weeks later when he was asked, well, if he's the nominee again, will you support him? And his answer was absolutely. And in those two weeks, we lost the opportunity to move forward as a country. And what's happened since is that Donald Trump and the Republican leadership have used the big lie, have doubled down on the big lie to go around the country and uh, usher in a whole new generation of disenfranchisement laws, but equally pernicious to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisan legislatures and boards. Essentially what they've learned, Bill, from the failed insurrection is that what they need to do next time is if they couldn't find a secretary of state in Georgia who would invent 11,780 votes that don't exist, they're determined to make sure that next time they will have one who will do that. Uh, and, and to me, that is how we still could lose our democracy. Um, if, we, if we do not hold the House in the midterms and seven, someone like Kevin McCarthy should become speaker, he will vote to overturn the next election if it doesn't go his way. Uh, and if there are people around the country, independent, courageous elections officials who've been hounded out of their jobs, uh, and that's happening as we speak, and they're replaced with partisan uh, acolytes of Donald Trump, uh, then we could lose our democracy. And so it's, it's a perilous point. Um, I, I do want to say that, that notwithstanding those challenges, which are very real, uh, we're going to get through this. Um, and the reason I, I feel so confident about that is because there are millions and millions more Americans who are absolutely devoted and love and cherish our democracy than those who are trying to tear it down right now. In many ways, Congressman, your book is the story of two impeachments. Impeachment number one, where you were the, the in manager, the lead uh, House member presenting the case to the Senate, and impeachment number two with Jamie Raskin there. Impeachment number one, we know there were, before the articles were filed, there were some who said, um, look, the Senate is never going to convict anyway, so why go through this, right, the process of impeachment? Why? What was, uh, what was your answer driving forward with impeachment, knowing that the uncertainty in the Senate? Well, it really two reasons. The first is we needed to do our job. We needed to do our constitutional duty in the House, even if we couldn't be sure the Senate would do theirs. And uh, you can draw a very straight line between the lack of accountability for Donald Trump's Russia misconduct, for his solicitation of Russian interference in our 2016 election, his use of Russian help, uh, his lying and covering up Russian help. You could draw a straight line between that, which concluded with Bob Mueller's testimony and Donald Trump's belief that he had escaped the jailer for his Russian misconduct, and the very next day after Mueller testified, he was on the phone with the president of Ukraine, soliciting and trying to coerce yet again a foreign nation to help him cheat in another election. Uh, so the lack of any accountability for his Russian misconduct directly led to his worse Ukraine misconduct. Uh, and indeed, the, the lack of accountability, because he was ultimately acquitted by the, the Republican senators um, in the Ukraine trial, led to the next, even worse abuse of power in his effort to overturn the 2020 election uh, and the bloody insurrection. Uh, but uh, first of all, we had to do our duty, and we also had to take whatever step we could to hold him accountable. Um, but also, and I was very conscious of this, um, we knew going into the, the, that first impeachment trial that we were not going to win. And I remember uh, discussing this with the speaker and making the observation that we needed to figure out how we could win by losing. 
And, and the way I concluded that we could win by losing is there were two juries we would be making the case to. There would be the jury in the Senate, and then there was the jury of the American people. Uh, and while we couldn't uh, expect to win over the jury of the Senate because Republican senators would not uh, uphold their oath, we did need to win over the American people. And I think I would like to believe that the case that we made uh, in that trial um, did help Americans reach the conclusion that the country could not afford another four years of Donald Trump and rejected him uh, when it had the chance. So I, I would like to think we succeeded uh, in that. When you stood on the floor looking in the faces of those 100 senators, what did you see? Did you see people who were paying attention? Did you see fair jurors uh, or, you know, people who had already made up their minds? Uh, you know, I, I actually uh, saw people really paying attention. Um, and, uh, and, and in particular, at certain points during the trial, um, one of the, the scenes I describe, and I wanted to give the reader a sense of what it was really like to step onto the Senate floor and uh, to try a case like this. It's a very small place compared to the House. You can see every face. You can yeah. see whether they're listening or not, whether they're moved or whether they're indifferent. Uh, and at one point during the trial, one really pivotal point, I was preparing to make my summation of the day and I, I become, uh, uh, I'd gotten in the habit of every day, whatever time I had to summarize what was most important of the day. One of my staff stopped me and, and said, um, they think we've proven him guilty. Uh, they want to know why he should be removed. And it really struck me uh, when he said this, because what that amounted to was they were acknowledging, including the Republican senators, that we proved him guilty of withholding hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid to Ukraine in order to coerce Ukraine into helping him cheat uh, in the election by smearing his opponent. Uh, and, and they were still saying that, well, maybe that's not enough. Um, and, uh, and I realized what they were really asking is, why was he so dangerous to the country that they couldn't leave him in office? Uh, and, and so I set about to prove something that it was, was not part of the charges formally, but that he was fundamentally untruthful, that he couldn't tell right from wrong, that he was basically indecent, and you couldn't leave a person like that in office. And if you did, uh, and I remember saying that the chances that he would try to cheat again were not five, not 10, not 50, but 100%. Uh, and as I was making these arguments about the, the president, you know, I was looking at these Republican senators in particular, and I was making the point that he was completely lacking in any moral compass, none of them were shaking their heads in disagreement. Uh -huh. They all understood exactly who Donald Trump is and was, uh, and they just lacked the courage to do anything about it. Um, and, and I ended up you know, concluding uh, that there's no flaw in the remedy of impeachment. There's, there's no need to redraft that provision or make it a majority vote or any of those things. The flaws in ourselves, if we don't give that oath meaning, if we don't uh, give it content based on right and wrong and uh, operating on, on the truth, then none of it works. Mm -hmm. um, what I will say, though, what, what still left me uplifted at the end of that trial was listening to Mitt Romney um, talk about his faith and talk about how he had children and grandchildren to answer to. And that uh, he realized that in voting, being the first senator in history to vote to convict a member of his own party, that he would be 
he would face a, a, a just a world of pain, but that uh, but that he had a duty to God to to, to give meaning to his oath, and that uh, he might be nothing more than a footnote in our history, but for any citizen in the greatest country in the world, that should be enough. And I, and I listened to that beautiful speech, and then I watched the courageous act, and I thought to myself that Madison was really right, that human beings do possess sufficient virtue to govern themselves. Uh, and, I, and I still believe that to my core. And part of the price you paid uh, for doing such a great job, I might add, is that you were called um, by the president of the United States a liar. Uh, he referred to you as little. He referred to you as shifty. And he called you scum. What's it like to be called scum by the president of the United States? Well, uh, you know, I have a pretty thick skin, which comes in handy in my job. Um, <laughs> what, 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 what was worse, really, was there were times when he would intimate uh, or say directly that I was a traitor, uh, that something should happen to me. Um, and I remember he had a meeting, I think, with the president of Guatemala. Um, and during the head of state meeting, uh, he said that, uh, you know, gee, in Guatemala, there used to be a way of dealing with people like Schiff, mm -hmm. uh, something along those lines. And I wasn't alone in, in being the target of these kind of not so thinly veiled threats. Um, others too, the whistleblower uh, was directly threatened uh, uh, by other things the president said. Uh, and, you know, it, it resulted in a lot of death threats. And, uh, and that to me uh, is, is obviously more serious than the, the kind of fifth grade name calling that uh, I also endured. But, but I will tell you this, Bill, uh, the first time he attacked me, he called me sleazy Adam Schiff. And um, I was on the house floor the next day. And I have to say my, House colleagues were very jealous that I was being attacked <laughs> by Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, Mike Thompson uh, of Napa said, uh, Adam, uh, you should reply on Twitter, Mr. President, when they go low, we go high, go F yourself. <laughs> and, uh, I told Mike I didn't think I could get away with that, but I did appreciate the sentiment. Uh, Mike Thompson, good guy. Uh, Congressman, I know your time is really, really tight. Let me just ask you uh, quickly a couple of final questions. One, so then you say, moving to the second impeachment, which we don't have time to really get into, but you make the statement that you think that the second impeachment was even more serious than the first, incitement of insurrection. Because? Because he was inciting a violent attack on the seat of our government. And uh, and in casting doubt on whether Americans could rely on our elections, which he continues to do this to this day by pushing that big lie, he's inviting political violence. If we can't count on elections to decide our differences or who should govern, then what is left but violence? Uh, and so to me, it doesn't get more serious than that. Uh, and, and just as you could draw a straight line between the failure to hold him accountable on Russia leading to Ukraine, the failure to hold him accountable on Ukraine leading to insurrection. Should Donald Trump get another chance uh, ever to occupy a position of power? Where does the straight line go from there? Uh, and so uh, I, I, I do think that we would see in him and have seen in him serial, serial abuses of power, each more serious than the last. Uh, and God knows what could come in the future, which is why we need to make sure that that prospect never comes to pass, that Kevin McCarthy never goes near the Speaker's office, and that Donald Trump uh, never goes near the Oval Office again. 
Uh, and very last question, Congressman, just everything you've been through, everything you write about in the book, from two impeachment trials to the insurrection and you being a target on the floor, do you still remain hopeful that uh, we're going to be able to get out of this mess? I really do. Uh, I think when you're in crisis, it's hard to see how it ends. Sometimes it's difficult to see if it ends, but it does end. This too shall pass. Uh, I have every confidence that we're going to look back on this chapter of history and marvel at what an awful time it was. And we will ask ourselves, how could it possibly have happened? But we will be looking at it from the other side. Uh, what we do in this moment, though, will determine how quickly we get through this and how much damage we have to suffer in the meantime. Um, I, I paint a portrait in this book of a lot of heroes, uh, as well as the villains of this period, the heroes like Marie Ivanovich, the ambassador to Ukraine, and Bill Taylor, and Alexander Vindman, and Fiona Hill, uh, even people like Dan Coates, the former Republican senator from Indiana who became the head of the intelligence agencies under Trump but wouldn't carry his lies about Russia or North Korea and was willing to lose his job and did lose his job. There are a lot of heroic people that have come out of the last several years. They should be the ones who inspire us. Uh, and I have every confidence uh, they will and we'll get through this. Well, you inspire a lot of us too, Congressman. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bill Press Pod again. Congratulations, midnight in Washington, how we almost lost our democracy and still could, Congressman Adam Schiff. Thank you, Congressman. We'll see you around the track. Thanks, Bill. Great to catch up. And that's it for today's podcast. We'll be back on Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. Great panel coming up. Gabe DiBenedetti from New York Magazine, uh, Addie Baird from BuzzFeed, and Hunter Walker uh, from Rolling Stone. He's the one who broke the story about members of Congress actually in touch with the organizers of the January 6th insurrection ahead of time. Should they be found guilty as well as all the people who actually assaulted the Capitol. We'll talk about that on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. See you then.